The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Today's broadcast is pre-recorded. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. We'll spend together the next hour talking together about this journey, this journey from the city of destruction as we make our way toward that celestial city, toward heaven. Now, there are many shortcuts that people can try to take. Or they can try to enter into this path of holiness by climbing over the wall wherever it might be convenient for them. And so the result is that many who are on this path, this road toward the celestial city, are only half converted. Are you one of those? Is there a cry in your heart to be holy? to be pure, to be clean, to walk before God with absolute obedience, looking neither to your left nor to the right, not being caught in the wilderness, not wanting to take any shortcuts, but wanting to walk straight toward Jesus. This scripture that I'm going to share with you today is found in the book of First Peter, Let me begin. To God's elect, strangers in the world. And I have to stop. This is being written to men and women, boys and girls, who consider themselves strangers in the world. Are you a stranger in this world? I am. I'm an alien and I'm a stranger. I don't belong here. This is is not my home. I'm on a pilgrim's journey. My life depends on the success of this pilgrimage. I am still on probation. 
as are all the travelers on this road. None of us walk this road saying, I'm saved, I have it in the bag, I'm going to heaven. Oh, we know where our destination is, and with every ounce of energy, we press forward toward that mark. But any of us could be tripped up by the giant discouragement. Any of us could be turned aside to a more pleasant path. We walk with fear and trembling on this journey. Many will not make it. Many of you who are now on this road with me will not make it. When I hear of one who has fallen, it breaks my heart. It's not an easy path, but it is a joyous path. It's a path that will test the very metal of your soul. It's a path that will cause you to be tried in the fire to see if you come forth like gold or if you're simply dross to be cast away. I want you to look at this with me. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer griefs In all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your salvation, of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So it comes slowly, step by step. Every step we take toward heaven, we are one step closer until finally we come to that Jordan River and it's time to cross over. And so, speaking now to aliens and strangers, Peter addresses us in a very specific manner. Verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desire you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Another word for holy is pure a pure heart. Verse 17, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you are redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you 
from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and your hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word that was preached to you. This is what I come and preach to you every day. I want to highlight two parts, and then I have a story I want to share with you. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by his blood. You cannot say that you are chosen by God until you have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's easy to decide, okay, I'm going to fix myself up. I'm going to have a New Year's resolution. In fact, I'm going to have a bunch of them. And I'm going to change and no, and no longer walk in lust. I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to share the gospel with people, and I'm going to go here, and I'm going to go there. And then in the end, you say, okay, now I'm all fixed up. I don't know of any sin that's in my heart or in my life. I'm all fixed up now. No, you're really not. You're really not. To be fixed up properly means that the Holy Spirit has come. He's broken your heart. And he's done a work in your spirit. We cannot fix ourselves up and hope to go to heaven. Oh, we can be very religious men and women. We can go to church. We can give our tithes and our offerings. We can choose to say no to sin. But we're not fixed up. I've noticed that people who kind of fix themselves up and and feel like, okay, now I'm sanctified, soon dive right back into their sin. And then they're hopeless and helpless because they weren't able to get the job done. I have a, a dear brother right now like this. He works for a, a government agency. He's very responsible. He came to the National Prayer Chapel some time back. 
He worked hard on fixing himself up. He prayed. He worked hard on getting rid of the tobacco and the cigarettes, worked hard on living a clean life. Thought he was doing well. Was responsible in the church. Brought his tithes and offerings. Volunteered for different things. But there was something wrong. Deep down in his heart, he was still the same man he'd always been. He just fixed himself up. But he was not yet pure of heart. And so when sin would rise up and he would have opportunity where he would not be embarrassed and where he thought no one would know, he dove right back into his sin. And then he felt desperately guilty, accused himself, castigated himself, condemned himself. And I would say to him, my dear brother, all of this self-condemnation is simply your way of punishing yourself so that you can maintain the control of your life. When are you going to recognize that you can't fix yourself up? This is a work that only the Holy Spirit can do in a man or a woman. If the Holy Spirit does not do the work, it's not done. There has to be a total breaking by the Holy Spirit of a man to give him a new spirit in his heart, not one of self-righteousness, not one of defensiveness, not one of saying, look, I've got everything fixed up now. Am I okay? Pastor, am I okay? No, you're not. Because you're still proud in your spirit. And you'll soon be right back in your sin if there's not a dramatic breaking in your heart a humbling. That's what this purity is about. A humble, broken spirit. Not a self-sufficient, look, I've got it all fixed up now. I mean, this dear brother left the church, has not returned, because he's unwilling to face the reality of his brokenness he still thinks he has to fix himself up. And so he lives with his wife and his family, and he goes his way, floats deeper and deeper down, sinks down into his sin, until now it looks like he cannot even be redeemed. Now, I won't let go. I keep standing by faith for this dear brother's redemption. But God has to do this work. We come to him, but he has to do the inner breaking and the inner cleansing. We can go through the inventory and we can look at the sins, but we have to bring them to Jesus, and until he breaks their power, we're not free. Now, we're not going to continue walking in the sin. We're going to fight against it. We're going to stand by faith but until Jesus comes and by the power of the Spirit humbles our hearts, we're not going to be free. What I'm sharing with you is old-fashioned holiness. 
old-fashioned purity of heart. And one of my favorite stories in this book by C.G. Bevington, he wrote many years ago in the early 20s, a story that I want to share with you today. In this story, he's holding a series of meetings. uh, And one of the elders, in fact, the lead elder, is also um, preaching. And after one of the services, this elder comes to him and says, look, we have a situation in our church that I don't understand. In fact, none of us understand. And we need someone who will pray through, who will not get off the trail, but will will settle this once and for all. So he picks it up. This man said, I would like to get your interest in a puzzling case that has baffled all of our efforts in trailing the matter out. There's a family, a most precious family. They're highly cultured and very refined. They're studious, they're careful, they're prayerful, and they're quite well off. Yet they're the most humble people I've ever met. They have one child, a 17-year-old daughter, of beautiful character who is loved by all. A year ago, she became pregnant and gave birth to a baby girl, but she is still unmarried. This has been a terrible blow on the family, nearly crushing their lives out. They've not been to the church for 16 months. They will not be persuaded to come, as the calamity seems to be more than they can face. Now, part of why I want to share this story with you is to point out the difference in our modern culture where sin is very acceptable. Speaking prophetically, a great sewer of violence is opening into America of wickedness. And as one dear brother who was given this message said to me this morning as we spoke before the broadcast, If you touch this vile poison, it will kill you. And he said, we're going to see the door of hell opened. And violence will increasingly spew out over America. I see that sewer opening right here in Washington, D.C. A place that I have spent my entire professional life serving crying out to God, pleading with God now for over 40 years, pleading with God for revival in Washington, D.C. I was a country boy. When I finished high school, I made a decision by the power of the Spirit to come to Washington, D.C. I did so because I had a school trip my senior year to a college in Washington, D.C., And as I walked onto their campus, I walked through a gateway, and over the gate was written the words, 
gateway to service. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, this is your gateway to the service I have asked of your life. This will be your place of ministry. And except for very brief times, I have spent now over 40 years ministering in this city. There is a sewer that will be even larger after the inauguration. And we will see destruction coming across America. Now I have just one word of warning. Do not resort to violence and do not take up arms against the United States government. The battle we have is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers in high places. It's a spiritual battle for the souls of mankind. It's not a patriot's battle that we're called to. It's a battle for the soul of men and women for their salvation. So don't be deceived as civil unrest rises up. We were not called to violence. We're called to Jesus. We're called to minister to Democrats and Republicans and independents, to citizens of this nation and to aliens of this nation. We are called as citizens of the Most High, the New Jerusalem. As we enter into this time of grave darkness, destruction, mayhem, murder, lying, cheating, stealing, civil unrest. As we enter into this, do not be deceived. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Back to our story. This girl is still there caring for her baby. The great trouble is no one can see her. Very few can get to see the mother. They keep very well secluded. The father is trying to sell so they can get away from the scene they believe has brought them down to the lowest plane. People are doing all they can to prevent his selling. Now that I've given you the facts in the case, and as you've been accustomed to ferreting out such cases through prayer by the way of the throne, I come over here purposely to get you to trail it out. Now mark in your memory how he used the word trail. He continued, Get on the trail, Brother Bevington, and the pastor and his board and I will stand by you. We will be right at your back. You just stick to the trail and don't give it up until you have uncovered the matter. Now, the whole thing is founded on the, on the word trail. So as the trail finder, I will proceed. First, I'll take you back about a year to where I was holding a meeting in Chillicothe, Ohio. The man I was staying with had several foxhounds he valued very highly. One was my particular favorite, a hound that was very intelligent. One night I heard a 
terrible yelping and blow after blow laid on this dog's back until I could stand it no more. I went to the window and I called out, who's pounding that dog that way? The answer came. I recognized it as from the brother with whom I was staying. Brother, I called down, why in the world are you whipping that poor dog? Well, he's my main fox dog, and I get money from others in training their dogs by this one. I was to get five dollars tonight, but this dog got off on a rabbit track and nothing was done. Well, does he know the difference? Most assuredly he does. That's why I'm whipping him so. Well, will it do any good, I ask? Yes, sir. It will be a long time before he'll take up another rabbit's trail. That poor dog got a terrible whipping for getting off on the wrong trail. That elder had told me to be sure and stick to the trail. You see, if I fail to stick to it, I might get the whipping that dog got. Keep these things in mind, for they play an important part in the coming events. Now back to the elder's trail. When I was closing my meeting over there, I went to the woods, as that was my college. When I got comfortably quartered in a hollow log, I said, Now, Lord, dost thou want me to take up this trail? You know the father of that baby and all about it. Is the case demanding a ferreting out? What would it have me to do about it? I lay there several hours before I could get much light. Yet I dared not crawl out of my log domain. Would thou be getting any glory out of it if I do, I asked several times. The trouble was I had several places awaiting my appearance for a meeting, though no definite dates were actually set. I avoided setting times for a meeting to begin or close. That was always left entirely for the Father to attend to. Many have said, Brother, where are you going when you get through here? I've only been able to say truthfully, I'm sorry, I don't know. It took me several hours to dispose of those prospective places, as some of them would have been liberal in their offerings, and my pocketbook had lain on so much it had gotten pretty well flattened out, all of which would be used by Satan to keep me from getting to the point of the issue. So, after 19 hours on my face, I was clearly impressed to take up this charge. Well, it was somewhat difficult to get on the trail. To get started right and know that I was right took me 54 hours of getting still and small enough that God could speak to me. So many of us are so important and so big and so great and so clumsy and so awkward It takes God quite a while to get us on the wheel so he can trim us up to fit through some of the small places. He has to grind off a lot of that self-importance as he can't use that very well in developing the cases, whatever they may be. I finally got to the place where he could actually pick me up and set me over there on the trail. I felt disappointed with his placement for I could neither discover any trick any track or smell the presence of one, but having received many thrashings for setting out on my own, I just got down until I found the scent and started making good headway. 
going back to what the preacher and the official board had said, be sure and stick to the trail. I will now draw on my imagination. This is a right I have always reserved for demonstrating things. In this instance, it will help you in getting the case clearly set up in your mind. I had to assume these four men had meant what they said, that they were on hand to do all that they could. They had said, we will be at your back. So here I am on the trail, and now you imagine they're following me right behind me. The trail goes through some pretty dark places where it's somewhat difficult to trace it out. So the men occasionally call out, Bevington, are you still on the trail? And in my imagination, I answer back, yes, I'm still on the trail, making headway, though, but it's slow. We'll stick to it. We're at your back. We want this thing ferreted out. Well, I'll not detail everything I faced during the next nine days, but I stuck to it. I stuck to it day and night without anything to eat. I only had two drinks of water during that period. I would get so close at times that I dared not leave the trail even to get a drink. Occasionally, these words rang in my head. Brother Bevington, are you still on the trail? Of course, I assured them. I'm on the trail. On the ninth day, early in the morning, I saw a large church. Remember, I was on the trail of the father of that baby. There was a large church with a deep porch in front and steps going up onto the porch from each end, one for the ladies and the other for the gentlemen. I saw a door at each side of the church on the end and a space in between these two doors, perhaps two feet wide and three feet long. There was a marble slab in that space with the name of the church in large letters and the date it was built. I saw all of this as I prayed with my eyes closed while I lay some 14 miles from that church. This is where the trail led me. I was suddenly hungry for the first time during the nine days and nights. I was very weak and exhausted, and I had to rub circulation into my limbs in a sitting posture before I could stand on my feet to get the use of my facilities, faculties. But I finally succeeded in getting down to the house where I'd been staying. They didn't know where I'd been. I gave the lady a full description of the building I'd seen while praying and then asked, Sister, is there such a church? Why, yes, that's our church here, a very nice large church with a strong congregation. Have you been over there? Well, I've seen it. Oh, she replied, I was wondering where you were since you'd left your suitcase here. Yes, we often go over there as it's only about 14 miles over good roads. There's some fine people over there, but... And then she stopped and bit her lip, changed the conversation. I knew what was on her mind. And she wanted to ask where I'd, where I, when I'd been there. So I answered, I just came from there. That puzzled her as it was very early in the morning, and I told her what the elder and the official board said, and that I'd trailed the thing to that church. I saw at once that this word was a blow to her idea of me. 
If she'd ever had any spark of confidence in me, it was all knocked out then and there. What I told her was the height of folly. Now I want to go back to that hollow log where I saw, in addition to the church, a path from the back of the church going down a slope to a fence. And beyond the fence was a grove with a large spring in the midst of it. I told her what else I'd seen while I was in the log, and she replied, yes, she said, that's all there. Remember, I'd never been nearer than 14 miles to that church. Then I told her of that wonderful sermon the elder preached against the saloon and how it ought to be exposed, and all of its degeneracy started in the saloon. She looked at me sternly. Brother Bevington, do you really believe that all this disgrace was wrought through the church? No one has ever been able to glean any information relative to where or by whom it was done. Yes, ma'am. It was through a box social. The Lord has shown me. Oh, I can't believe it. Well, I can't help that, I said truthfully. What is to be done about it? They will never give consent to such a report as that going out against that grand old church. You'll have to let it drop and say no more about it. In fact, you better get out of here before it gets noised around. I said, no, I can't let it drop as the four cautioned me to stick to the trail. The pastor from that church is down here visiting a member who recently moved. Do you think it best to see him before you go away? If so, I'll have the boy go after him in our buggy. Yes, I wish you would. When the pastor arrived, he threw his hands up in horror at my report. He shook his head defiantly as he said, I will not accept that at all. Well, sir, you have to accept it whether you want to or not, I told him. He rose and he said, Mister, you've seen this church or gotten all this from someone. Now you want to bring this awful calamity down upon its pure, unstained portals. Sir, you shall not do any such thing. More than that, I want you to get out of here. If you haven't any money, I'll take you to the train and loan you money until you see fit to, to repay it. If you don't, that'll be all right, too. Well, I decided it was time to, to recall a few things for him. Do you remember what you and the other three said, that you would all stand by me and that I should stick to the trail? Do you remember that? He didn't reply to my question, but stormed off to drive 44 miles for the elder, muttering, going to have that crank put where he won't bring such disgrace in the churches. I was branded as a genuine church splitter. The next day they all came, the pastor, the elder, the official board, Except for the elder, they were all denouncing me. He didn't seem to have much to say, and I felt it. he was thinking it possibly, but, but wasn't sure. Well, they gave me 24 hours to get out of that country. Well, I was accustomed to threats, threats of rotten eggs and clubs, tar and feathers and rails and dungeons, insane asylums, pits and jails, and even the whipping post. So I was not badly frightened and made no move toward picking up and getting out as they ordered. Aren't you going to get ready and leave, they asked. Well, I'll not be too hasty about this, I said. 
I'll have to wait on the Lord to get orders. Well, the pastor stood up and he said, We've just given you your orders, mister. I'll have to wait on the Lord, I said. When he says go, I'll go, and not before. Well, it will never do to have such a report go out relative to this grand old landmark church. And then the elder spoke up, Brother Bevington, it may be possible this is all true. Suppose we admit it is true. Would it not be better to drop it? We will pay your way to your next place. You told me to stick to the trail. If I should do as you say, then there will always be the questions, with me at least, what did you do? Did you stick to the trail? It would necessitate my lying to say I lost the trail. The evil deed was done in that grove at one of your box socials. Then I turned directly to the elder and I said, Do you remember the sermon you preached against the saloons? Yes. I said very carefully, You said that every crime that was started in the saloon ought to be published and the saloon keepers made to face it, exposing them as the cause. Now when a young girl loses her virtue in and through a church, is the crime or disgrace lessened any because it was done through the church? He admitted the crime stood as horrible in one case as in the other, but insisted it must not be exposed here. O consistency, thou art a jewel, I quoted. Then I said firmly, I cannot keep still on this matter. It is now reported that I lay up in the woods nine days relative to to this. Well, you can't prove it is she will not allow anyone to see her. At that I left them, and I walked to the woods, and I got into my previous quarters to talk to my master. Lord, you've permitted me to go this far. Here I am to get permission to see that girl and get the whole truth from her. I realized that was quite a proposition, for she had not allowed anyone to see her. It took me six days to get the buzzards off and then to get them entirely out of the way so I could get still. Troublesome buzzards were not only confined to the prophetic days, but seemed to be quite numerous these days as well swooping down upon us to devour the offerings of revelations. After fighting those long hours and keeping all hell off, I got still, and I saw myself approaching a house from the back, going down a hill, crossing a creek, and going up a bank to a a garden fence. I climbed over the fence and went through the garden gate up to the back porch. I knocked at the door, and when it opened... There was the mother of the babe. She invited me inside. This was all seen as I lay on my face in the woods praying. I got up and I ran right into the path that led through all that I just described. I came to the brow of the hill. I saw the house, the path to the creek, and the garden. I just stopped, got behind a tree, and poured out my heart in gratitude to my blessed leader, I praised him that he'd granted me the privilege of outwitting all man's efforts. I then counted it all done, and I went ahead just as I've stated. The mother of the babe opened the door and invited me and gave me a chair there in the kitchen. 
As I was a stranger, she was embarrassed and called her mother. The mother came in and was very surprised to see me there with her daughter, but she gave me a hearty handshake. Then they broke out into tears and wept perhaps thirty minutes. Nothing but deep sobs could be heard. Not a word was uttered. I wept, too, as I could read between the sobs what it all meant to their precious hearts. While we were there, wrapped in silence, getting down to where the real life was, the father came in. He took in the whole situation at once and threw his arms around his daughter. There was another very pathetic scene, and soon he released his hold and clasped my hand. His tears were flowing and his frame trembling till my whole body was influenced. We wept as if our hearts would break. I felt I'd never been under such a holy, pure influence as that which pervaded that kitchen. It seemed the great weight which had been crushing them was being applied to me as well. I don't remember ever having such intense heartbreak or sorrow as I did in that home. I wanted to go to the barn, but seemed to be held by an unseen power. The blessed Holy Ghost was there in the midst of that shame. It was so beautiful. I felt that underneath were his everlasting arms. So real were those arms beneath all four of us that I just burst out between the sobs. Oh, dear beloved, God is here. His arms are beneath us. At that, the father released his hold on my hand, reeled back and fell into his dear wife's arms, and they both fell on the sofa and gave vent to heart bursts, which I've never forgotten. Oh, reader, I can scarcely type these lines as tears flow freely while I go back over that scene. I cried out, Dear beloved, his arms are beneath us now. We are emerging from this awful darkness that's hung like a death pall these 17 months. And I began to praise God, and the mother of that girl rose and clasped my hand, weeping for joy. As she waved her right hand above her gray hairs, I never saw a gray hair look so beautiful as she stood before me, her face radiant with the glow of heaven. She said, I know that you are a man of God. You're the only one who's been in this home for 17 months. Then the father said, okay, all, let's sit down, please. And we did. The beautiful mother of the baby rose, not beautiful in outward appearance, as she was not possessed with what the world calls a beautiful face. But I was getting glimpses of an inner being that was beautiful, so meek and lovely. She told me the whole thing from the beginning to end. At the time of this box social, the father was very busy in the wheat fields and could not go, neither could the mother. But seven nice girls came and asked the parents to let the girl go, and so they said, We all will go together and will remain together and come home together. We have money to treat ourselves. So the father and the mother consented, and the girls went. But as soft drinks and the cakes with a wing in them began to be auctioned off, 
Excitement rose pretty high. Girls' boxes were put up for auction at 20 cents a vote for the prettiest girl. Soon everyone was coupled off and parting from the crowd, this girl going along with the proceedings. And after they had eaten, her companion suggested that they take a stroll down to the spring and get a drink. She did not like that very well, but finally consented as he said they would return in a few minutes. When they came to the spring, the young man said there hadn't been any school here for some time and the water might not just be right. He said, I pass here daily and I like to get a drink, but the doctor told me that I should use a water purifier. He gave me a powder to purify the water. I'll, I'll just put it in now. He gave her the first drink, and she said that was the last that she knew until the next morning when she woke up in her own bed. She had thought it was very kind of him to be prepared against impure water. All the time she was telling that she was in tears and had her head bowed. Finally she looked up and she said, I don't know how all of this came about. I've not been able to allow myself to see even my dearest friend. Is this a dream, she cried. What have I done? I've told you all, all that I've ever told even to my dear parents who stood by nobly. At this she fell into her mother's arms. What a scene. I wish I could picture it. She said, I just don't understand. The father rose and clasped her in his arms. Daughter, this is no mystery. God has answered your mother's and my prayers by sending this man of God here to get at this. Then they asked me how, I, how it was that I'd come, and I related all that I'd been told, and how I'd been in the woods for nine days, and then again for more than 70 hours. I told them how I'd seen the path and followed it to the kitchen. They all marveled at the greatness and the accuracy of God. How long do you think all of this took? It took over 11 hours before we were through in that kitchen. And by that time, it was nearly midnight. I was shown a good bed, and I tell you I appreciated it, for I'd spent more than some 300 hours without a bed or anything to eat. The next morning, I enjoyed some good country ham for breakfast. The family soon sold out and went to northern Michigan to the pine lumber belt. I saw the girl once more at the Cincinnati camp. She, she still had her experience with Jesus. Ever since that time, I have fought box socials. I've suffered many times for such stands, but have lived through it all. I'm as bold against them now as ever. One time I had to walk more than 60 miles carrying a heavy suitcase because of the stand I took against box socials. I'll say to our holiness preachers, take your stand emphatically against box socials. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice against them, thunder it wherever you go. Let us rise up as one and pierce the serpent at its very center until we have driven it from our midst. I read that story and my heart was touched because of the purity of this family. 
and the heartbreak that this date rape had brought about as he had drugged her with her not participating or cooperating. I was raised in a church where we had box socials. Some of you may not know what they are. The the women would all make a lunch or they would make a, a dessert and they would bring knife and fork and spoon and napkins and then they would all be auctioned off as a fundraiser And, of course, if you were married, you made sure you bought your wife's box and nobody would intervene. They'd sometimes tease and and bid on it just to make you bid it up higher. But the single people, it was a big social event to see if you could get the bid on the box for the girl that you liked. And then they would go off together and have a picnic. It seems innocent enough, but it's not. There are many things that go on in the church today that appear to be perhaps innocent, but they're not. We've become very loose. Many babies today are being raised by a single mom because they were taken advantage of by some man. I know of many such single women. We need a new level of of preaching and teaching, and we need to get rid of this social gospel. We need to get rid of in our churches this laid-back, comfortable attitude. We need to have some teeth, and we need to declare holiness, and then we need to hold one another to the standard of being clean and pure before God, of speaking kind rebukes one to another as necessary, as needed, encouraging one another to walk clean before God, to not engage in anything that would not be righteous before God. I've had to be very careful in these things not allowing myself to ride by myself with a woman in the car that is not family. I make certain when I do counseling that my door is open where others can see in. And normal conditions being true, I only do counseling with a woman if there is another person present. Today we need to raise the standard of guarding the purity of our hearts. As we look at this year coming up, I would challenge you to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit and to begin to be very conscious of what your appearance is, and what your actions are. That anger and rage would be put away, that malice and bitterness would be cast off. That a work of the Holy Spirit could be done in your heart. 
that you would walk clean before Jesus. None of us will get to heaven by chance, but many will get to hell by chance. It takes a very deliberate decision, a very deliberate opening of our heart for the work of the Holy Spirit, a very deliberate course of action that will move us down the path toward that celestial city. I welcome you to come and visit at the National Prayer Chapel. This is the whole heart and cry of the National Prayer Chapel. To be holy before God, to serve Jesus Christ. That's what our heart cry is. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. I'd like to give our post office box address. I'd love to hear from you. I'm very grateful for the letters that I've received, and I'll be responding to all of them. Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That that address again for the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. God bless you today. Walk pure before God. I'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blessed.